0: Hello and welcome to The Comedian's Paradise, a podcast where you speak to amazing, fantastic and brilliant people from across the globe that inspire comedians like you and me to live this company journey on our own terms. If you like this episode, share it with your friends, subscribe on this fantastic journey and give us a fantastic five-star review on Amazon or iTunes now today's guest is a real fantastic domino's pizza of a comedian like the best flavor a full meal he is safe (laughs) abu kendil he is a fantastic comedian all the way from egypt he developed a lot of his time and his comedy gems in london through fish and chips and full english breakfast and is a brilliant comedian as a result of the perfect sausage and baked beans let's get to know him and let's chat to him how you doing say? i'm all right i'm
1: all right you know uh back in my infidel days i did enjoy a pork sausage a bit of the bacon but you know me, me muslim stomach couldn't handle the uh the complexities of eating uh, pig meat, so uh, uh, that my, my English breakfasts have become uh, a bit kosher now. So I go for the kosher bacon, I go for the kosher sausages. I am actually, I don't give a shit what Piers Morgan says, little tough pot boy. I think Greg's vegan sausage rolls are the dog's bollocks. I think they are, like oh. having been, having tasted a pork sausage roll, and tasting a vegan sausage roll, those things are very, very. They taste the same. You close your eyes, it's the same thing. What,
0: whatever, whatever, whatever tickles your fancy, whatever, whatever you're into, <laughs> mm.
1: whatever's your fetish, you know. Close your eyes, eating a banana <laughs> on public transport, whatever flirts you about, mate. Okay,
0: so we're going to be doing actions for the podcast. I'll do an Arnold Schwarzenegger. You're going to do a Cockney.
1: Get to the chopper. Yeah, no, we'll, we'll do our best of our impressions.
0: <laughs> you know, I'm going to be running
1: for 2024. We're going to make America Nazis again with my running candidate, Ann Coulter. <laughs> Vote for Trump and Coulter 2024. We're going to make the Nazi party come back again.
0: Well, I mean, he's very popular in that party, and I mean, a, a lot of people are saying that he's probably going to go again for presidential nominations, won't he? Let's see. Is
1: it is it bad to hope for someone to die like him, like, or or at least you know, at least at least instead of playing? Uh, what is it? You know that here comes the chief, or. Uh, that whatever you know the the americans play for their presidents i think they should just play the closing credits for curb your enthusiasm i
0: i I just want i mean yeah but it's also very hacky i mean every sort of left-wing comic is used to make i mean they're disappointed now they got no more trump jokes to use because he's no longer president
1: now i just drive around mar-a-lago in my golf cart shouting i used to be president Now I can't Twitter anymore.
0: Or boxing matches. Apparently he commentated on a MMA fight with... uh... And
1: let's not forget about him taking his tie and shirt off and going bare-chested into the Burning World Trade Center and, you know, helping out, you know, find those passports that we could be able to identify the hijackers. You know, ran into the burning jet fuel towers and was able to recover the passports. And I, I got the passports of the hijackers, and I found this African American baby I rescued, and I gave mouth to mouth resuscitation by grabbing that pussy cat on the window.
0: You got a you got a Biden impression. You do a little short little skit of Biden and Trump arguing.
1: This is my Biden impression. All
0: right? are you are you paying attention? This is my Biden impression. You're not gonna forget, are you? Sorry, mate. I've forgotten. I've forgotten. Could you do it again?
1: (laughs) You know, I I was actually just seeing him on BBC News 24 just now and I remembered about a friend of mine saying, like, you know, after Endgame he had put written, I just wrote on, like, Facebook, I just saw Endgame was brilliant, and then he wrote at the bottom, like, in the comments, what was it? I had no idea they were going to get Biden to make that cameo at the end.
0: It's to be honest, one thing I want to say for you this, what what started uh, the impressionist journey of Trump and Biden? How did you get here, safe? Like in terms,
1: how did I get here in terms of impressions?
0: Yeah, and, and your comedy journey, like to um, making fun of Donald Trump, Biden, and all these. Well,
1: that's the. Uh, I think maybe the well, the impressions, uh, like doing impressions for me. Uh, it's just something I'm able to do. I was able to do. I mean, like, I'm old enough that I grew up with that as a Gen X baby. Um, thank God I'm not a Gen Z. I think everyone's happy they're not Gen Z. Um, when I, like, on our road trips, we used to, like, make our own entertainment, uh, driving from Cairo to Alexandria. And um, I think... Um, just doing impressions in the eight, like from movies, you know, doing Yoda, Chewbacca with my older sister, it, it, you know, the. I know, I know, you know, like just the whole back and forth between Chewie and Han Solo was always like, you know, that is why you fail, you know, it was just like uh, the, the ability to just try and emulate voices was something I did long before I did my standup. And, um. I think as I got into comedy, I think the impressions wasn't actually my go-to. Like, I mean, there, what was his name? Rory Bremner, that British comedian that really was famous for doing a lot of impressions, especially Tony Blair. And uh, was, it, was his name Rory Bremner? That UK, uh, he was on Channel 4 a lot. I think his name was Rory Bremner. Might have been someone else. I'm not sure. But there was like a lot of different impressionists that their specialty was storytelling and using those impressions that they did so well. And I think um, they say, what is it they say? Impressions or imitation is the highest form of flattery. But I don't think I'm flattering uh, Donald Trump when i do an impression of him uh some voices just come naturally to do quite easily and others are are a challenge but it's not the focal point of my stand-up i I try to do more a mixture of gags quick gags uh storytelling uh depending on how much time one has on the stage like if you're doing a five minute then you got to be like you know rapid fire if you're doing a 10 minute set or a 15 minute set you can sort of take your time and have a bit more fun with it uh doing maybe like it it all depends on the time you're doing and then when you're doing your one hour specials at the fringe uh edinburgh fringe or leicester fringe or any of the fringe festivals or any of the comedy festivals you actually have a lot more time to explore the arc or the story of who you are on stage because one thing that's always appealed to me about stand-up comedy is like you know when you do when you're in a theater production you've got the director you have got the writer you've got the main antagonist the protagonist you've got uh the extra people on like whoever's in the scene or in the show production then you've got the stage hands and you know costume and so on and so forth Whereas when you're a stand-up comedian doing a one hour show special, you're the writer, you're the director, you're the main actor, you're your own antagonist, you're your own uh, leading lady, you're everything all rolled into one. And I think life is serious enough as it is. And that's probably what, because I was in theater before I did comedy. And I think what what didn't appeal to me about theater was the seriousness of it. Like life's serious enough as it is, you know, why can't we just, and I think also that was when me and the director of the theater group I was in, we, we didn't butt heads outright in front of the, whenever we'd have like those creative meetings, but there was a part of me that would feel, I don't belong here, this is not my thing. And comedy was just something I fell into by chance, by, uh, by coincidence. Like uh, I was with a group of friends, I didn't even intend on going up on stage. And I was like, I was every comedian's worst nightmare, Uh, like especially (laughs) ill-prepared comedians. He didn't have material. He thought, ooh, fat guy in the audience, I'm gonna pick on him. And I turned every phrase back at him. It started with him saying, oh, look, it's Limp Biscuit." And I was like, is that an indirect fat joke? Are you saying I'm like the whole band rolled into one? Or I look like Fred Durst, which is Fred Durst. Or do I look like the guitarist with the weird eyes? What are you trying to say? You know, I was a bit high at the time. So I might've had glazed red eyes. So I wasn't sure. Might've been on the defensive, but still, you know, poor show from his side, trying to make fun of a guy that he hardly knew. So, Hmm. but the... Impressions, I don't know, it's like sometimes I, I mean like there's, I don't know if you've ever, I'm sure you must have met Anil Desai. He did that Impressions of a Hindu special.
0: I've heard of him. and I've. Uh...
1: He does phenomenal, imp- like he has a very large Rolodex of impressions and he does a lot of impressions. Like he really does do the effort and I think for me. It wasn't like I want to compete with that, and it's not that I want to be known as another impressionist comedian. I'd rather be known as a comedian that can also do impressions, but it's not my go to if that makes sense, you know, and also like i do I like doing musical comedy, like doing comedic songs, but again, I don't want to be known as like a Mitch Ben or a Bill Bailey, you know I don't want to be known as a musical comedian, so I kind of think. I want to be always constantly changing and evolving in my comedy journey. So that's what brings me here and keeps me going, I guess, is the, the ever-changing.
0: Okay. and and But how did you become like a comedian in Egypt? What was it oh. that made you? So how, how did it start? Like you went from, you did, went well, to a comedian. I lived
1: in, I lived in the UK. Uh, I... Was at the Fringe Festival in 2007 doing my own solo show, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Middle East. And um, uh, an agent from Canada who was doing his show in Edinburgh, that Fringe, was like, Yeah, you know, you can make a great career. Come to Canada, I'll help you and all this. And at that time, my parents were like, My mom lived in the UK with me up until 2002. Then she moved back to egypt like we have my dad he bought this house in 1979 not the house the land in 1979 he built the house uh not himself got it you know people to do it he designed it and my mother was sort of like uh you know she was a conservative she was forward-thinking she was a traditionalist um she is She was Iraqi, uh, is Iraqi, um, and sort of did this, uh, what parents do, which is like, you know, I'm very happy for you. I hope this goes well. But if for whatever reason it doesn't go well, you're going to come back to Egypt. You're going to get a regular job, and the comedy will be something you do as a hobby. I was like, okay, fair enough. Canada didn't work out. The guy happened to be going through a really, really super rough divorce at the same time as my, and he was focusing more on one of his musical clients rather than me as his first comedian uh, client. And I just sort of, I came back to Egypt uh, and by the grace of uh, Allah, I got a job teaching in a private international school in Cairo. But I never did the passion for doing comedy die out or, or extinguish. I always wanted to do that. And I started in 2010 doing comedy nights in Cairo. Like I found a venue, got in touch with a bunch of the comedians that were there, that, that were doing it in Arabic. Because Axis of Evil, I don't know if you remember Axis of Evil, which was Ahmed Ahmed, Maz you know Badila. They came to Egypt in 2007 and they kind of sparked and inspired a lot of young budding comedians to start doing stand-up comedy. Okay. And by 2010, and then obviously we had the Arab Spring in 2011, uh, then this young chap by the name of Hashem al-Gerhi, he started what was known as Al-Hizb al-Comedy which was Egypt's first platform for stand-up comedy, started in August 2011. Um, And it kind of grew from strength to strength by the end of 2013. What happened was that I actually left teaching, full-time teaching in October 2013 to look after my dad, he had prostate cancer. And As well as looking after him, I kind of was invited to do a Christmas show, like appear on, they asked, originally they wanted me to appear. I ended up hosting, I was the compere for this comedy night in December 2013. And I ended up being asked to become the managing director for El Hizbill Comedy, which I did for 14 months. Uh, We left on good terms, but it was just because I felt that I had told him if uh, certain things weren't where I thought they would be a year from now, then I'm going to move on, but we'll like walk away from each other in an amicable way. But of course, us being in the Middle East, there's no such thing as walking away amicably. So we walked away butthurt. Uh, but we we are on talking terms now and everything's cool and kosher and under the bridge. I mean, you know, on water under the bridge. But... Uh, yeah, no, I in 2013, 2014, I made that decision of like, you know what, screw teaching. I wanna go full-time whole hog into doing stand-up. And I 2015 I launched my own indie label called Ronan Comedy. Um at the beginning of 2020, we were gonna do like Ronan Comedy was gonna do this thing called hashtag gigging in Egypt bucket list. Then COVID came and said, fuck all your plans. You had plans fuck them. Sorry for the listeners that are under the age of 18 that got a little offended. Mom, what does fuck mean? <laughs> um, so, yeah, um, I just I think what motivated me or inspired me to do or continue doing stand up comedy in Egypt is there's every culture has a need for stand up comedy because as i said life is too serious we need to be able to let our hair down we need to be able to just chill and kick back No, ame, nari.
0: Mm. Um, what <laughs> what is the so what is this is is it the structure quite loose in egypt because in malaysia it, i hear it, it's it's not it's barely even 10 years old comedy over there
1: um eh, in egypt we have a thriving circuit of a body of comedians like there's a lot of talented egyptian comedians that who perform in arabic like um ahmed al-haridi muhammad gamal ad-din ala al Sheikh, muhammad helmi uh ahmed isama sayed uh Kimocho. like there's all these different comedians but like a lot of us in the back of our minds we know that because of the society structure and because of the seditious nature of stand-up comedy we kind of don't have the luxury that say a UK comedian like if a UK comedian gets up on stage in a pub function room you know on a comedy night and makes fun of the uk government directly nothing will happen to that comedian whereas in egypt it's it's just best not to discuss politics and it's best not to discuss religion just because those are the two subject matters that the government doesn't have a sense of humor about ironically there's nothing wrong with me getting up on stage and say making fun of the UK government or making fun of the EU or the US Congress or making fun of Sudan or Libya or even Israel, believe it or not. But the minute I open my mouth about domestic politics that's when I could get myself in hot water. Yeah. Like there's one comedian, you, you know, college humor
0: yeah, yeah, it was brilliant.
1: So uh, there's a Middle Eastern equivalent, which I think is called Nine Gag. And they release like videos, shorts and stuff. And a comedian here, a Christian Egyptian comedian, he did a joke video about the people who read Quran on the radio. And after he finished the video, he actually this actually happened. He got married and then one week or two weeks into his marriage, like when he just came back from his honeymoon, he had a knock on the door and the guy was in jail for like a month because of that video. But yeah. So, you know, I mean, me personally, it's, I can see that in the Middle East, it's not an easy, like all governments in the Middle East They have a certain element of like, I mean, I hope I don't end up being black bagged and taken to the desert for what I'm about to say. But we all saw what happened to a Saudi journalist in the Turkish uh, Saudi embassy, like the embassy, the Saudi embassy in Turkey, just because he was a vocal opponent of MBS, Mohammed bin Salman.
0: Whoa. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, comedians complain here about this, about certain things, about, oh, you can't joke about this, you can't joke about that. Well, at least you don't get bloody killed for it or bloody arrested for it, so shut up.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I I find, you know, I mean, I don't want to sound like, uh, like I try not to be one of those uh, kettle pop black glass house catapult thrower, uh, but... You know, sometimes comedians in the UK really, they've got it good. They really should stop bitching so much.
0: It's, oh, and do you have open mics in Egypt where you do short bits and you go to semi-pro, pro, and you go on TV or star and all that? We,
1: we have got open mic nights, but ironically, those open mic nights, when it's like, let's say there's a venue and they're doing an open mic night, it's not aimed at people from the comedy industry alone so you'll have a girl coming up there and reading a poem you'll have a guy coming up with his friend on a guitar and they're singing a song then you might get like a couple of comedians gate crashing that venue and one or two of them getting up on stage and doing some stand-up so and then you have the they're marketed as an open mic night for comedy but the lineup is pre-filled up before the night so it's not one of those where like you know how in the uk you could hear of an open mic happening in, let's say hounslow or stockton or finchley and you jump on the train you jump on a bus you go to that venue you don't have any like what i did with insta like in Hammersmith like I knew of the venue from I think Paul Ricketts who's a friend of mine and a comedian he was telling me yeah there's like in Hammersmith there they they do this comedy night I literally I just turned up I walked up to the compare I forgot who it was that night and I just sort of like you know any chance I could get up on stage just do five minutes and he was, before he was, he was literally about to say no. And then before he had a chance to say no, I was like going, look, I'm from, like, I live in Egypt and I'm going to be flying out there in, like in a week. And, and he just suddenly went, go on then. You'll be on off to this guy. You know, I was like, yes. But um, I do need to confess to your audiences, uh, even though that night was a good night, I was actually on autopilot because when I came to the UK in October, 2019, uh, my mother, unfortunately had three different, uh, three different forms of cancer all at stage four. And uh, she was, uh, yeah, I didn't expect that she was gonna pass away in London, but in the back of my mind, I kind of expected it because she never wanted to die in egypt she never wanted to be buried in egypt you know she even had this run going joke about like i have nothing against egyptians i wish them well i wish them they have their own spot in heaven had nothing to do with us and she passed away on the 6th of october now on the 6th of october is what's known as a national holiday in egypt and um basically uh basically my mom she kind of passed away on the 6th of october now in egyptian culture 6th of october is a national holiday and ironically it's based on the 1973 war which was in the gregorian calendar it was the 6th of october in the muslim calendar it was 10th of ramadan and in the hebrew calendar in the jewish calendar it was yom kippur the day of atonement so my mother was like she passed away on the 6th wakes up and just goes sees like all these egyptian flags in heaven and just thinks oh man ain't this a bitch i died and went to the egyptian heaven and then jesus would be like ah psych we got you you actually been in a morphine coma for three days it's just you know yeah we're we're just helping the egyptians celebrate because you know a lot of war heroes and veterans but anyway so um And ironically, I started doing comedy on the 9th of October, 2002. And on the 9th of October, 2019, at 11 a.m. was when we had her funeral. So my day of starting doing comedy is now forever 9 11 by my mother's funeral. because I can't really perform on the 9th of October. I mean I probably will on the 20th year which is next year. Like hopefully I'll be based in the UK and do like some big special like hoopla of a gig with like good friends on the lineup and but it's generally I think one thing I learned from uh, Billy Crystal's 700 Sundays. I don't know if you've ever seen that production it was based on his broadway musical it starts with him talking like as a voiceover and showing clips of new york and he was like you know on the 11th of september i lost a lot of people that really had mattered to me and it's very hard when a comedian is going through a tragic thing in their life to be able to find the inspiration or the energy to make others laugh and then it cuts to him doing his production of 700 Sundays, which was all about the 700 Sundays he got to spend with his father before his father, his hero, passed away. And it's just this really interesting as a comedian, like you try to um, you try to do the best you can do with what you have. And ironically, 2020 a lot of people were complaining about the whole lockdown for me 2020 felt like the universe was giving me a sabbatical if that makes sense like I I didn't have to worry about the then ironically I started craving doing gigs you know because like when you've been doing something that is what you love what your your raison d'etre your what you love doing I mean I know there are Essentially, there's two types of comedians, those who love what they do, and wouldn't don't care about their success, whether they do great or not. They love doing it. They love the people they meet on the circuit. They love the the adrenaline rush. They love that laughter. And then there are those that, you know, they come into it, they try it, they're not, you know, they might be okay in it, great in it, but they don't feel that they've got what it takes, you know, they're their own worst enemy. Or they're crap and then they don't do it anymore. But I mean, I don't know. Fifty shades of different types of comedians, I guess. And for me, comedy is what I love doing. I, I wouldn't trade it for all the space cake brownies in the world. <laughs> wouldn't wouldn't I, I don't wanna be like one of those comedians that ends up being on TV because in TV you're censored. You get censored by the executives. You get censored by the advertisers. Do you remember there was that time in the UK television when uh, Richard Hammond used to do a 5 o'clock afternoon pre-watershed show that was live?
0: I thought I'm afraid. Sorry. That's
1: okay. No, no, it's all right. It was like around 2003, 2004, 2005, six. that Richard Hammond, the guy from Top Gear, the shortest one, used to do this uh, pre-watershed show on itv and i got a call from a friend saying hey listen they're looking for comedians to come and do a spot on this show and i was like great and she was like "Tell me listen it's tv and it is pre-watershed so have your cleanest material possible which is a bit, again, you know, I hate being told, you know, like I hate being told what I can and can't say, you know, and I live in a country now where I have to watch what I say, but I hate being told what I can and can't say. So I went and I did my material for the first set of uh, censors, or should we say, but like, you know, the people were like, let's see what your show is about. Like, what's your material? They loved it. They approved it. They greenlit it. Then the second set of uh sensors were like let's hear what your thing is and i did it and they were like yeah it's great we green light this and i was sitting in the audience but in an empty studio and they're like doing their setting up and you know the markers and you're gonna come and stand here you know and then they were like can you come up on stage and do your material and at this point was the studio executives in the booth you know like where they watch all the cameras zooming in and whatever and they were the ones that blackballed the material. They were the ones who turned around and said, no, you, no you're no, you not going on TV, not with that material. Which was kind of strange. They could have turned around and said, no, you, you're not going to do that joke. But they just decided they didn't like what they saw, which was really weird. It was, but, you know, everything happens for a reason. You know, one door shuts, another 10 open in their place. So... I don't get the green light for that, but you know, I can now say, as seen on Comedy Central, uh, I recorded this in March, April this year, and it aired on the 6th of September this week, like on Monday this week. So I am now able to say, as seen on Comedy Central's channel hopping with John Richardson and Judy Love and another comedian, I forget what her name was, so bad, so bad, but yeah. (laughs) You know, like everything happens for a reason. You know, yeah. all good things come to those who wait.
0: Well, what's his face? John, Rich um, a friend of mine who, in L.A., who um, he did this really short bit on last comic standing. And basically mm-hmm. it's this bit where he didn't get through the audition stages, but they thought they'd invite him to come back in again. And the producers told him to do a hacky Mexican joke. And so he goes and does it. And they say, oh, I cut the judges say, oh, I can't stand that hacky Mexican joke. And then he gets to keep that as a credit on last comic standing. And a lot of times Mm. the people don't research that. So he's able to use that to help him get gigs.
1: Well, I mean,
0: to a certain level, of course,
1: to a certain level. But like, I mean, I. I actually, because like what was interesting with the channel hopping was that one of the researchers did a Google search for Egyptian comedians and, you know, articles about me came up. So he reached out to me via my Instagram and they were like, we do a show, it's called channel hopping. And they sent me an example, like one of the past episodes from season one saying, this is what we're about. And I was like, okay then they said now you need to go and find clips from Egyptian television I was like oh shit this is going to be tricky but I'll give it my best shot so I went I got like six seven clips got all the information and this is interesting that I got them seven clips but we only ended up using two
0: okay
1: so uh, and it's but it you know uh, it is what it is I mean television is one of those weird beasts that you don't want to be on it but at the same time you do want to be on it you know you want to make it by like i mean i'd love to be on eight out of ten cats or have i got news for you or you know some panel show with other comedians and singers or whatever like never mind the buzzcocks you know it's 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 nice to be you know to because like that's one thing that audience members come up to you afterwards and when you've done like a great show they come up to you and they'll always say that they don't mean it as an insult when they ask you they'll be like oh why aren't you on television you know and you can say something off the cuff jokingly like you know i value my soul or i don't want to go to hell or you know satan already approached me and i said no um but um, it just—it's it, just the the luck of the draw, you know. You get the cards you're dealt with, and you just make do with what you can. Uh, it's just—I—I I mean, like, I am actually proud of the fact that I can say "as seen on Comedy Central," but I always have to say Comedy Central UK. I can't turn around and say Comedy Central because that'll be a little audacious of me. But if I say "as seen on Comedy Central UK," then at least it specifies that it's not Comedy Central Arabia, it's not Comedy Central Asia or Australia or US, but it is still Comedy Central. It's under that umbrella. Yeah. So, um, so luckily for me, my my clip aired and I'm actually, I didn't have the misfortune of your friend with the judges saying, we don't like that hacky shit. Did he, Okay, I have a question for you though. When the judges turn around and say we don't like that Mexican hacky shit, did he turn around and grass or snitch on the producers and say, well, actually, the producers told me to do that Mexican hacky shit? He didn't
0: say that when I got him on the podcast, but he just said that he's got, because of that, he gets to include that credit of being on Last Comic Standing.
1: Ah. Because a friend of mine, what's the name of that Icelandic comedian... He's got like a weird surname. Simonson? No, different one. He's got like that, like a short surname. Ven? What's his name? He was hosting a comedy competition for Laugh Factory uh, in Europe, and they were sort of like doing an international comedy competition. And uh, there's one comedian you can try and reach out to actually after me, which is the white Sudani, Omar Ramsey. He was actually a contestant on that. And they flew him out to uh, the Netherlands for that back in 2018, if I'm not mistaken. And he was representing Saudi Arabia, ironically, rather than representing Sudan, even though he is, you know, Sudanese Irish
0: oh uh, does
1: the name ring a bell
0: no I've, i'm looking up the names that you you on the wikipedia Ah, that's white
1: interesting. sudani yeah yeah omar rumsey the white sudani he's uh he's actually very funny very very he actually started off the him and other comedians they started the comedy circuit in saudi arabia of all places and it does kind of burn us in egypt that Saudi Arabia which is allegedly way more repressive allegedly way more suppressing of freedom of speech has a thriving comedy circuit where they're bringing comedians like fluffy and and Dane Cook and Louis CK and like all these big name star comedians to Saudi Arabia to Jeddah to perform and yet here us in Egypt we're just sort of like you know trudging along like the turtle in the the hair and the turtle it's just it's it's sad it's sad like we allow people to get beer and whiskey and wine in our country and yet you know if you're caught with alcohol in Saudi Arabia you can get your head chopped off
0: mm-hmm. if you're
1: Saudi or you can be deported if you're non-Saudi
0: but yeah so how does that work so you can purchase alcohol but you've but you can't you can't drink from it is that what you're saying
1: no in saudi arabia saudi arabia is a dry country it's a completely dry country you're uh, unless you live in the compounds and unless you're a full-on foreigner without arabic roots you're not like the only people allowed to own alcohol or have alcohol are foreigners that live on like foreigner compounds in uh, like gated communities for foreigners in saudi arabia
0: i'll tell you one thing mate that people must get tempted in saudi arabia to have a have a have a try when someone makes it such a big taboo i think there's part of them that wants to be bad some of them that want to go like well i want to give it a go
1: um ironically you'd think that and yeah but i part of them part of them do but like i think it's the the fact that people can get their heads chopped off for owning and supplying alcohol in a black market capacity uh it's it's a trippy culture i mean like you won't find like uh you won't find like it's just it's like I don't know I mean like I can't speak about the rest of the Middle East because like I mean I've been to the Emirates and the Emirates is such a interesting dichotomy of clashes like Dubai is sort of like the Las Vegas of the Middle East but you're only allowed to if you're the proprietor of a bar you're only allowed to open your bar on the same grounds as a hotel. But then you've got the other Emirates, Sharjah, which makes Saudi Arabia look liberal in terms of like their Islamic uh, uh, law. And then you've got Abu Dhabi, which, you know, we have this running joke in the Middle East, which is that whenever Dubai screws up in a financial crisis, Abu Dhabi is the rich uncle that says, I got this. I'll take care of it. You know, your debt is taken care of by Abu Dhabi. Don't worry
0: and is that are they the ones that own manchester city
1: they are abu dhabi is the one that does the formula 1 grand prix they're the ones that never struggle for financial uh, whatever like when dubai had the crash abu dhabi was like again here you go so yeah that's the Good old fashioned, yay, more nuclear submarines in the world, because that's what we need. Sorry, I've got BBC News playing in the background.
0: Well, I mean, one thing is, uh, I mean, until the oil runs out, I mean, but
1: I say we should just grow fields and fields of marijuana and just switch to hemp as a source fuel. Ford did it he built a car that was made out of hemp and that was powered by hemp fuel he did it he actually proved that you can have a car that runs on hemp
0: ham did you say for hemp?
1: hemp hemp that'd be a bit weird a car fueled by ham
0: yes but that's what I say that would be quite a car. <laughs> I
1: mean that'd be like you can imagine Bernard Matthews driving it going it's beautiful
0: <laughs> I mean, also, of course, having your English breakfast and ham sandwich, you sat in the back of the car. As like, I'll
1: eat the eggs and I'll just pop the ham in the fuel capacitor. be like yeah. that thing from back to the future where he was putting garbage in the thing. But, uh, crazy world we live in.
0: Wouldn't that also mean that certain cars would get banned? Because if if you have a ham car, you wouldn't be able to drive in certain places, wouldn't you?
1: It would not be popular in Saudi Arabia. That is true. That is true. But imagine imagine all those eyebrows raising in the Muslim world and they'd be like, there are cars that are powered by ham? Huh. Another tricky debate question for us Muslims. This should be interesting on 20 questions. But, yeah, <laughs> you know, like, uh, it's fun being a Muslim in the 21st century.
0: What, um, so, what would you say, where is, how, how does the circuit sort of, what's, what, what's the, um, I have to think about this, what are, like, the main clubs in Egypt and main people you got to get in contact with if you want to be a, you know, if I if my name is Billy Bollocks, arrogant prick, and I wanted to do well in comedy in Egypt, wh- where would I go into the uh, big clubs and all that? Well,
1: Billy Billy would have to change bollocks to something more. Uh... Although the word bollocks is not as known in in the Arabic uh, culture, in the Arabic speaking culture, so could be all right with that name of bollocks, but. Uh, it's ironic. We used to have a comedy club that started in the end of 2018, but then it closed its doors in 2019 just because it was badly located, like uh, it was located in this building, which had these horribly, horribly painful, like stairs that you made you feel like you were doing three leg days in one. Um but the venues that you approach are, there are a couple of venues that they do entertainment and they do allow certain nights allotted for comedy. The, the way to get a, a night, like the way to get a part in doing comedy in Egypt would be approaching either Al-Hizbil comedy via their Facebook page or their Instagram page uh, the Comedy Bunch, again, either through their Facebook page or their Instagram account. Uh, Helmi Man Events, who organizes Comedy Bunker. And Helmi, Muhammad Helmi actually organized Egypt's first ever and still does these roast nights. You know, like, uh, you know how there are those roasts? I don't know if they have them, if they're big in the UK. Like they are in the US, where like comedians, like two comedians are on stage and they try to roast each other. Uh, we started, he started doing that in 2019 in, in Egypt. He did the first ever roast battle. Uh, There's never been a roast battle before, and he actually organized the first one. And now he actually has, I wouldn't say the monopoly, but nobody else seems to be doing as good a job as Mohammed Helmi on the uh roast battle comedy nights but he also organizes co- it's basically through promoters that happen to also be comedians that is how you would get your foot on the stage in an egyptian circuit is by approaching one of the key organizers so at his comedy comedy bunch the comedy bunch which are from alexandria uh helmi man who is also alexandrian but he's based in cairo and venues wise like a venue that you would approach would be the room which is like a cultural hub place that they organize (coughs) They organize comedy events the library the alexandria library actually has from time to time done live comedy events uh usually booked six or seven months in advance they have a very like they have like different performances ongoing throughout the year so if you wanted to perform at the alexandria library you'd have to approach them if you're overseas you'd have to approach them at least nine or ten months before your proposed date but uh, there's not that many there's like no comedy club now there's no like comedy store or the comedy cellar or the comedy cafe or bill murray's or camden comedy club there's nothing like that here in egypt
0: one thing how, how do you ban do you do comedy in egypt in english as well as egyptian
1: i personally do my comedy in english um i can bring arabic into my uh into my ste- into my set for the audience's sake but uh i mean when i'm on stage in the uk or in canada i my material is completely in english very rarely do i speak arabic in front of english speaking audiences i don't feel too comfortable doing a, a arabic sets personally that's just me i i don't feel that comfortable i don't feel i tried I did try once in 2015 and failed miserably. Actually, I remember uh, several times I tried doing comedy in Arabic and it was not successful because it's not my thing. But uh, But English speaking, that's my bag. That's where I feel comfortable at. Sometimes I'll be even the only English speaking act on the comedy lineup at a comedy night. Like there'll be all the other comedians are doing it in Arabic and I'm the only one that does it in English. So sometimes I actually have to turn down the dial on my, on my English speaking and try to simplify certain bits to not having such elaborate gildings that the English speaker would appreciate, but that the English as a second language person wouldn't struggle with. So it's, it can be a bit frustrating, a little bit.
0: So, <laughs> okay um what what has been an interesting incident where you tried to do comedy in egyptian i mean Uh,
1: well before that there was actually a night where i was doing a comedy night uh like i was actually the headline act and in the middle of my set this girl puts her hand up and it's like an automatic Reaction, like you know, after years of being a teacher, when you see a hand up, you're just sort of like it was like it took over my programming as a comedian, and suddenly the teacher me took over and was like, Yes, you have a question. And she turned around, she said, Which means, do you speak Arabic? I'm like, Yes. She goes, Why don't you do your set in Arabic? And I just was like, I, I looked at the audience and I was like, Is this for real? And then suddenly, uh, like one of the other comedians, he yanked down the projection screen indicating that we were about to give a lesson because of the whole that moment of like, you know, the student raising her hand and the teacher answering. And it was just a weird moment. And even after that show, I've after shows, I've had people walk up to me and say, you know, like, you know, why do you do your show in English? Why don't you do it in Arabic? And I'll be like, why do you assume that everyone in the audience who was laughing is not laughing to be polite, but they're laughing because they understood. Because I always feel like there's always that person that they struggle with English. So they presume that everybody else must be struggling with English. And that's why they say that, like, why don't you do your show in Arabic? But in terms of the Arabic, I think maybe I might, out of preservation and traumatic revelation, I might have compartmentalized the two or three times I attempted doing, I mean, I remember one time I was booked for a corporate show and they were all, the audience was guaranteed Arabic speaking. So, And at that time, there were English speaking acts, but I couldn't recruit any of them for the night. So I got two other Arabic speakers that they came and they performed. And I tried doing my material in Arabic and the audience was just, what was weird about the audience, Marvin, was that they were, they were almost, I don't know if it was because their superiors and their bosses were in the audience with them. That they felt that if they're not allowed to laugh at work, they're also not allowed to laugh at a comedy night, even though their bosses hired a comedian who in turn hired two other comedians. So there's three comedians. And the first comedian who went on, he was like, he performed his best material come off. He was like, it's so weird. It's like they didn't want to laugh. And I was actually studying the audience. They were almost covering their faces, covering their mouths. Like they didn't want to be seen as laughing. That was like one of the weirdest, trippiest things I'd ever seen. And the headline act he came on, started doing his strongest material at the very start. Again, audience were reluctant to laugh, but suddenly they just started to warm up to that concept. They understood the concept and then they started to allow themselves to laugh. And by the end of his set, they were laughing out loud So it was just one of those, I think sometimes there might be people in the demographics of the population that are unaware of the concept of what stand-up comedy is in Egypt. So that's why the concept of somebody standing up and telling jokes that are not hack-hack gags, like, you know, the one-liner comedians of take my wife, please. I take my wife, everywhere. She always finds her way home. You know, my wife said to me, take me somewhere I've never been before. I said, all right, I'll take you to the kitchen. Uh, What's his name? That comedian who said all those jokes, he was in Goodfellas as well. Point is like when you're like one of those one-liner comedians and the whole audience is used to it, there's that culture of comedy or expecting comedy. But sometimes Egypt is one of those countries where you'll have the audiences hungering for comedy and then they'll be like, what is comedy? I can make you laugh. Why do I need to pay money to see you laugh? I can make you laugh. Like that, you know, like how many actors does it take to change a light bulb? Ten, one to do it, and the other nine to say, I could have done that better.
0: Pretty much, yeah,
1: <laughs> The same mindset here in Egypt sometimes with audience members. But uh, next question, my brother.
0: It's a funny thing, isn't it, with actors? They're they're very... I've always found it quite surprising that you hear of actors, some of them, they just do like a month course or do certain courses Mm. and then they get onto big projects and you get people that are going to NADA and all these big acting schools. They spend years and years doing it from when they're like three years old Mm. and then they're working in Starbucks watching someone who's not studied acting for a while make it in a big (laughs) film
1: uh murphy's law it's it's murphy's law like some people make it big do it big do great things with their um with their with their career choices sometimes it's also a case of like i mean i i love reading up on imdb internet movie database a trivia about movies, but more importantly about actors. And there's this great little trivia fact about Christopher Walken is number one, he doesn't have a smartphone, nor does he have a computer, doesn't believe in email, has an old school telephone and any acting role that his agent calls him up on, he takes the role. And his response is, you know, it could be a good role or a bad role, either way, it's an experience to do with people, you know, so it's like uh, you get that idea of, you know, some actors do it for the love of the game, you know, some actors do it for the love of being the center of attention. Uh, you know, then you got someone like Denzel Washington, Morgan Free. you know, these actors that are phenomenal in their field and, bring a nuance of talent with them with whatever role they undertake but again it's like you know do we you've heard the old axiom of like why do we make stupid people famous and that happens also in comedy and music and every industry we sometimes make the stupid people famous because they're easier to control
0: that's a very good point that's a lot of people wouldn't don't, don't normally say
1: <laughs> think about the stupid actor the airheaded actor who goes on camera and you know when you meet him in an interview or you see him in an interview we have that why is that person famous because their agent and the studio are able to control that person and do whatever they want with that person he's eye candy he's box office figures he's ass on seats in the cinema he's happy meals being bought from mcdonald's with the free toy representing the movie it's it's all marketing it's all merchandising so and i think there's a tragedy in the stand up comedy world where i've heard about constantly about how some comedians don't get bookings because they could be outspoken opponents against misogyny, or outspoken opponents against misandry, or outspoken p- opponents of you know toxic feminism, or outspoken opponents about liberal feminism, or outspoken opponents that are pro-LGBT rights or anti-LGBT rights. So, and this is the weird thing because I've heard, I can't remember, I think it might've been on the comedy forum, where somebody was discussing about booking an act that they don't like. And then somebody, I think it was a comedian. Now I remember it was President Obonjo, Benjamin uh-huh. Bolle Bello. And he had written a post about how a venue, the booker, doesn't like his act. And didn't want to book him because he doesn't like his act. And then somebody had commented, well, when I was a booker, there were plenty of comedians I don't like, but the audience is like, I'm going to book who the audience is like, you know, and that's a nuance that some bookers don't, they overlook. And, you know, it's like, it's like Abraham Lincoln said, most men can handle adversities, but to test a man's true nature, give him power. So when you give a booker the power of I approve of this comedian, I disapprove of this comedian, I approve of this comedian, I disapprove of this comedian, there is an element of like you know unlimited power, the the emperor from uh, Star Wars, the the power craziness of it all. So uh, it's it's a tricky field, our field, but I think the lockdown has done a nice little indirect factory reset like 2020 gave a factory reset for the whole industry i mean it's very sad and tragic the number of venues that actually had to close down for good because of the lockdown that's actually that's not something that we should scoff at there is the optimism of well, hopefully in their place, you know, out of the fallen ashes, a new phoenix of comedy order will arise. So we we just have to I don't think comedy is going to die completely. And I don't think the concept of a comedian standing in front of an audience, grabbing the microphone, making people laugh is ever going to end because people always need to laugh. It's just a case of we just have to hope that there's never a monopoly of the what's that word the um the boys club or the club of bookers the elitism so to speak that we see sometimes and you can see it evident in in comedy forums and in co- in posts in the comedy collective comedy forum scottish comedy forum english mm-hmm. comedy forum uh chortle messaging boards back in the day before facebook so you can see uh there's always going to be different points of view uh you know the the what was it pre-festival versus the free fringe peter buckley hill's free fringe the there's always going to be like the east coast west coast tupac biggie beef going on in every industry like hell even in music like I remember hearing a rumor about how Guns N' Roses frontman Axl Rose hated Metallica's frontman Hetfield and vice versa and if ever Guns N' Roses and Metallica were on the same lineup there was always a 50-50 chance there would be Fisticuffs fight breaking out between Axel Rose and Hatfield backstage. That was the rumor. Whether or not it was true, that's another thing altogether, but I mean, has there have you ever actually heard of a fight breaking out backstage in a green room between comedians?
0: No, they do it through bitching, or they do it through uh, social other, media, or they, they do this, or they spread things behind the scenes. The, the, what's it called? A comic that I've had on the podcast says he, he interviews criminals. Like In, in his world, people wow. get their head kicked in. But the worst yeah. thing with comics is they'll bitch about you in the car yeah. or, or, or they'll bitch about you and try and fuck you over in terms of getting gigs or career. That's what they'll do. And effectively, it's a bit like, in some ways, um, I think a lot of comedians are a bit like little girls in a way. They're not blokes or men or adults a lot of the times, no, 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 more no, no, like no. little girls.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, you're absolutely right. It's, it, it's kind of sad that, you know, our main role is to bring joy to other people. And if somebody happens to be a little better than you at what you do, don't hate the player, hate the game, maybe, or hate the fact that you are not evolving because it's like medicine if you look at stand up comedy like the world of medicine you'll see the analogy and i'll give you a great analogy of this the it used to take orthopedic surgeons up to 20 hours to replace a hip it was a procedure that required the patient to be in hospital two weeks post operation to recover now hip replacement can be uh, you walk in in the morning and you're walking out in the afternoon with a stick but you're walking with a new hip that's been installed via keyhole surgery that means that there were developments there were advancements in the field of medicine in comedy there are social evolutions taking place so for example a comedian in 1970s could make very homophobic or racist jokes like Lenny Bruce was the king of saying the uncomfortable in the audiences back in the day of the 70s. Now, if somebody tried to do Lenny Bruce's routine today, that shit wouldn't fly. No. So there's been social evolutions taking place. I mean, uh, I remember when I was starting in the circuit that it seemed the easiest thing to do back in the early 2000s, as an example. And I hope you don't get blacklisted for what I'm about to say. It seemed really easy for a lot of comedians, not going to name and shame them, to uh, make fun of the Palestinians, to make fun of Hamas, to make fun of a lot of uh, there is a manufactured agenda right now in how the world perceives the Palestinian and the occupiers slash Israeli situation you know, there are words that are, float over the heads of a lot of people outside of the Middle East. They don't know what Nakba is. They don't know that 1948, what it represents to a lot of Palestinians living in the diaspora of the world. And the thing is that if we look now, there's Palestinian comedians like Mo Amr, like um, I forget his name. Somebody was pointing him out to me the other day. But there are Palestinian comedians now coming on the circuit, and that 's a lovely evolution that we didn 't really have. And my only hope is that I think comedians sometimes they go for the easy jugular of racial bigotry as a punchline because it 's the easier thing to do, but that 's the lazier thing to do that makes sense like on oh, you wanted to add
0: no it, it yeah i think that, that's that's especially when you're like us and it, we're in a western country that it's so yeah. it's me
1: yeah because i mean like i'm looking at you facially you have what looks like possibly from the orient heritage possibly from the asian continent you could look like you've got some afghani roots you know you've got oh. like uh you could have Kurdish roots. God knows, our family trees are very diverse. I mean, on my mother's side, she is Iraqi, but she would tell me, she used to tell me how, you know, 20 generations back, our, like on her side of the family, was from Yemen. Um, my dad would tell me he was Egyptian and from Alexandria used to comment about how he believed we were related to the second caliph omar bin khattab who's based in Saudi arabia so there is an element of like well what is our genetical makeup so to speak type thing so our you know what's funny is like last year i was talking with a friend of mine she's uh, afro caribbean uh, lives in the uk and it was just after the whole uh, George Floyd uh, incident in June, and we were talking together on Zoom, ironically, as you were saying, what do I have against him?" Nothing. We were talking on Zoom, and uh, it dawned on me that I also was a person of color. Even though I don't see myself as a person of color sometimes, because color is a state of mind, you know, like ethnicity is a state of mind. Why should it be an issue? But yet there are comedians that will make race an issue, that will make race an issue of the butt of their jokes. So it's it's tricky because where do we draw the line in the sand of what is okay and what is not okay? Fun point to sort of draw upon. When I was doing A-level media studies, it was at the time that Goodness Gracious Me was on television, was like on prime television. And I remember my teacher saying that if a group of white Northwestern European actors slash comedians brown faced and did the same sketches as the cast of goodness gracious me were doing, that would be racist. Yet the sketches that they were doing on goodness gracious me from their point of view is not racist at all it's like um what's his name how can i just forget it all oh, atif atif uh, noaz i think is his surname where he was doing a sketch comedy where there was all these different people applying to the to portray muhammad salah So they were all like, they all had curly hair. They all had beards. They all had like Man United shirts. And they were all trying to basically be Mo Salah. And none of them could actually, I I don't know. It was like, there's a lot of BBC three and BBC four and a lot of clips that I can see sometimes on social media that I don't get to see because I'm living in Egypt. But it's uh, like, i think as long as we of the like i just recently uh started this thing i'm on clubhouse a lot and i was talking with other muslims about this and arab speaking like from arabic speaking country muslims and the word jihadi oh yeah We want to take i want to take that back for us because the word jihad translates into english as a struggle to overcome your inner demons and be a better person does that sound like a horrible pretext to a holy war no no J- like jihad and nafs means like you are having a struggle over yourself nefs means self so the same way that african-american rappers might drop the n-bombi like you know like the muslim equivalent can be like what up my jihadi jihadi please and just to take it one step further if you remember that film um boys in the hood with ice cube and cuba gooding jr how's this for a scene reworded in that context yo i tell you where you can find the finest women where the mosque what jihadi please i'm serious man you ain't gonna find no woman in the mosque oh yes you will Go to the women's section. There's a lot of fine honeys there. Jihadi, please. Jihadi, what? So that's my goal for the end of 2021 is to try and recapture the <laughs> word jihad and jihadi and make it like popular. And it's actually starting to work. Like a friend of mine on the clubhouse, he was like, I got to go and do some errands, but I'll be back my jihadi. <laughs> it just started to like, it. it's it's moved It's got like its slow momentum, you know, out of like... My only hope is that the secret services won't think that we're trying to organize ourselves in a much more satirical way and arrest us for satire. That's my only hope.
0: Fingers crossed. <laughs> fingers crossed. crossed.
1: Which is a Christian thing, but fingers crossed.
0: Okay, so... Uh, hello, cross? <laughs> I don't know what to say. If I say Crescents. something... Crescent.
1: Crescents United. <laughs> Crescent.
0: yeah. I mean, you, you saved me from going into a dark hole there
1: yeah crescents united into a heart
0: (laughs) well noodles united i'll say that i I, I can say that no i'm joking you can
1: you can my noodle
0: (laughs) (laughs) uh, so one of the things that i want to say is it's been good to chat i think that what you said there the last bit i think i will be an awesome little clip i think um but like if 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 I want to find out about you, find out about what you do, how do people get in touch?
1: Um, send me a carrier pigeon or like Wonder Woman, fire the arrow, arrow of Artemis to the temple of Athena and I will find you. No, um, what you do is <laughs> you can follow me on Instagram at safe underscore Abu underscore deal you can find my comedy page i have got a website that i'm building at the moment that is safespace.com which is s-a-i-f-s-p-a-c-e.com and i have a youtube channel uh ronin comedy productions um yeah like i said because of the lockdown and because i'm currently stuck in egypt my goal and my aim is to try and migrate myself back to the united kingdom so by this time next year i'm sure a lot of your listeners will be seeing a lot more of me hopefully fingers crossed crescents united stars of david shurikens all that jazz.
0: <laughs> well of course. of course yeah they're going to be seeing they'll be seeing you soon Head, headlining and Doing, Arab, doing jokes in Arabic, yes?
1: <laughs> Only on Arabs are not funny nights, but um, ah. <laughs> uh, no, I think I'll be doing uh, English, w- maybe with an Arabesque accent, but uh, very rare, very unlikely that I'll be doing comedy in, in Arabic, I doubt. I highly doubt, I highly unlikely.
0: <laughs> That's a- years of practice, that accent, eh?
1: You know, when you live here for past 14, 15 years, you can sort of emulate uh, the accent of, uh, of uh, the Egyptian. Uh, you just sort of know how to sort of, you know, uh, how you say, mother, father, sister went to the zoo. Perhaps, yes, perhaps, you know, exactly, I don't you know. <laughs>
0: if i did it i think it'll be a whole different podcast so we'll, we'll stop it there <laughs> but yeah uh, thanks for coming on guys make sure you see sa- safe soon and take care mm-hmm.